I'm Henry Bean, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Paul Williams, the director, not the songwriter or the rock critic or the architect. The other Paul Williams. In this, our fourth season of the World is Wrong podcast, we're doing something a little different. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and Paul, Paul Williams, that is, has graciously agreed to join us to share excerpts and outtakes from his memoir, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, currently available as part of the Screen Classics Collection from the University Press of Kentucky. Williams is the director of The November Men, which World is Wrong listeners will already be familiar with, as well as films like Out of It from 1969 and The Revolutionary from 1970, both starring a young John Voight. Williams, with his Pressman Williams production partner, Edward Pressman, was a producer of films like Brian De Palma's Sisters and The Phantom of the Paradise, as well as Terrence Malick's Badlands. Beyond the movies, Paul rode many of the movements of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both political and cultural, with characters as varied as Margot Kidder, Candace Bergen, Waldo Salt, and most of the important directors associated with New Hollywood. If you're interested in the story of New Hollywood, Paul's memoir fills in some major gaps. And if you're too lazy and or cheap to get the book and read it, well, this podcast will give you a taste of what you're missing. In today's episode of the podcast, Paul reads a selection about his relationship with Huey P. Newton and the Black Panther Party. 1970. Short North Koreans in black suits visit Eldridge each morning in his second-floor apartment in a two-story house outside of Algiers. Yeah, North Koreans. We must wait for them to leave in their black limos before we go in for our early afternoon meetings. Eldridge informs Liz, Michael, and me that the Panthers plan a kamikaze attack on New York City. The flash of lightning, June 19th, in four weeks. There's no time to raise money for Bobby Seale. Cleaver is confused by Michael's repeated suggestion that Eldridge go back to college and get his degree, and taken aback by Elizabeth's sharp question, how do we know if you get power, you will rule any better than Nixon? My mind explodes with these illuminations that my friends lack revolutionary spirit. Elizabeth's question, however, stymies Cleaver for some time. He says, finally, you're right, you don't know. It's a matter of trust. And each evening, Liz, Michael, and I are escorted past the six black shepherds on the staircase while Eldridge makes telephone calls to Panther co-founder Huey P. Newton in the States. On the way back to our hotel in town, we drive around the plaza where so many French soldiers were killed by the revolutionary Algerians, recreated by Hilo Pantacorvo in his Battle of Algiers. The plaza is empty of life and movement, eerily silent. Don Cox says, this is what it will be like. Nobody will be on the streets of Manhattan except cops and panthers. Movies aren't scary. Life is scary. Four years later, 1974. Bert Schneider comes out to the ranch with Bob Rafelson. 
Bob smacks our Appaloosa, Sean's lad, in the head with a two-by-four to quiet him down enough to ride. Different folks, different strokes. Bob makes Sean's lad jump the log piles. Bert wants me to meet his friend, Huey P. Newton, in Huey's penthouse in Oakland. I'm on my path now. I'm post-political. I don't really want any more Panther adventures, but Bert is one of my best friends, and Huey is his. Why am I going to do this? It's just too interesting. Temptation. Only those who resist know how strong it is. I soon sit on a long couch at the end of a line of six attorneys. On the other end sits Lenny Weinglass, the renowned constitutional law advocate and defender of the Chicago Seven, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Dave Dellinger. Huey P. Newton sits alone in a big lounge chair facing us all. At the large window behind him, on a tripod, there's a telescope aimed across Lake Merritt into the courtroom of his ongoing trial. Huey says, Why is the black foreman of this jury going to find me guilty of second-degree murder? I imagine I am the foreman of this jury. Meanwhile, none of the other lawyers respond to the question. Huey waits. I look at Lenny Wayneglass. I wait. He is silent. Not a word from the others. I say, because he thinks that if you get a hung jury, the foreman of the next jury will find you guilty of first-degree murder. He believes he's saving your life. Huey stares at me. He says, that's right. Who are you? I say, I'm Bert's friend, Paul. Soon, Bert and the attorneys and I start to leave. Huey says, stay, I want to talk to you. Bert leaves with the lawyers for L.A. I like this handsome black man. We stay up all night. There's a large bowl of cocaine and a big bowie knife to use as a spoon. We are enhanced. I say, what were you talking about with Eldridge on the phone to Algiers? He says, murder. Eldridge was arguing with me that the flash of lightning would cause Nixon to impose a fully fascist regime, and that would then vitalize an American revolution. I say, nothing about my wife and me, who we were? He says, no, I told him the flash of lightning was a counterproductive idea. I say, is he still living in the French embassy? He says, yeah, he talks a lot. We talk about mothers and taking risks. His mother had showered him with an excessive amount of love when Huey was a baby. He says, I was the youngest one of the seven. I was the baby and my name was Huey, so everybody wanted to call me. Don't say it. Don't even think about saying it. Who wants to be named after a funny-walking, funny-talking cartoon duck? As toddlers, we both experienced the reality of an excessively, instinctually unbalanced mother love that no other love can ever match. So in later life, we are always ready to move on from a healthy experience of love to risk to try to recover that bizarre feeling of excess. We agree that it's not healthy, but that it gives you more self-confidence and forward movement. Huey tells me about his conversations with Eric H. Erickson at Yale. What a coincidence. No surprise they agreed about the need for a positive identity for Afro-Americans. Black is beautiful. Their conversations are later published as Search for Common Ground. I had learned about the unitary logic of Buddhism from Oscar Ichazo. In the West, we believe, like Aristotle, if A is not B and B is not A, then A and B cannot be the same thing, as in a computer code, zero or one. In the East, however, they believe that A and B always coexist, that only the equilibrium between them changes. That notion leads to reasoning rather than argument. 
So too, Huey had done away with Marxist dialectic. Thesis A gives birth to opposing antithesis B and resolves in a synthesis C. Huey now gives me a yellow note card with a diagram of dialectic movement and below it a, quote, trialectic diagram. He says, in trialectics, there's oppression, point A, and there's revolution, point B. And then there's the balance between them at any given moment. That's the two-way arrow equilibrium, C. Simon Bolivar said the fire of revolution never dies. It just expands and contracts. Huey says, if Americans knew the disasters that lie ahead, they would transform the society tomorrow for their own preservation. He tells me that he was in solitary confinement for three years and six-month stretches. After each six months, he was brought before a judge, who he lectured on the racist system of perverted justice that the judge enabled. When Huey finished, he just cursed the jurors to his face, who then ordered him back into solitary for contempt of court. In no danger of being raped, Huey survived on just enough food so he did not have to shit in his dark, bare cell. He exercised physically and mentally. Huey learned how to, quote, stop the pictures in my brain, to enter the void. After he got out of jail, Tasahara's Zen master, Dick Baker Roshi, acknowledged Huey's awakening. I fly up to Oakland on the weekends that follow to hang out with this wise man. Huey tunes me into things I never would have learned on my own. The readiness to die may be beyond, but not beyond revolutionary politics. Huey is upset with me during another nighttime discussion. He says, stop looking for heroes. He picks up a copy of his recently published autobiography, Revolutionary Suicide. He inscribes the title page to Paul himself. Think of that. In the middle of the Oakland trial, Huey flees. On the night, he drives down to Big Sur. Artie Ross bulldozes a grave for the getaway car on Partington Ridge. After a few days, Artie drives Huey to L.A. to an apartment hideout in Watts. Sometimes we all meet late at night at Burt's on top of Benedict Canyon to plan his escape to Cuba. A guy who flew into Wounded Knee wants $100,000, that's 514000 today, to fly Huey to Havana. The mafia also is too expensive. A crazy Cuban with a make-believe cell phone contraption outlines a cheaper plan that ends when the psychotic takes a few gunshots at us in Cantor's Deli. So Artie then labors for two months to get his sailboat outfitted in Florida. When he gets it seaworthy, it will sail through the Panama Canal and then up to Marina del Rey to pick up Huey, then back again through the canal to Havana. Artie is exhausted by the work and delegates two mountain men from Big Sur to set sail on the first leg of the voyage at night. A few hours later, stoned out Little John, who likes to wear women's underwear, is zonked at the helm. The vessel is on the wrong side of the channel buoy and powers over an underwater statue of Jesus Christ that rips open the keel. The two abandon the ship as it sinks and swim to shore. Little John asks a passerby, Where are we? The man answers, Key Largo. Bert, Candy Bergen, Barbara, and I visit Benny Shapiro in his elegant compound of Yalapas in Yalapa, Mexico. Benny is an older Gun Israeli terrorist fighter, ex-Bob Dylan manager, and successful smuggler. He is the racist who simply puts the, quote, Schwarza under the army blanket and drives them across the border into Mexico. I turn down Bert's suggestion that I accompany Huey with a camera for the Caribbean leg of the escape. I refuse to enter into this danger for politics. I know I am over that line now. 
On the east coast of Mexico, Huey buys a ride on a fishing boat with an outboard-powered dinghy put on board for the very last leg of the journey. In the surf of a beach in Havana, Huey crashes his little boat. He is arrested at gunpoint and held in jail for eight weeks until he's identified and then assigned jobs in a garbage truck facility as a repairman and in a school as an English teacher. Barbara gave birth to Zoe a few days ago. It was a harrowing, long delivery of a new life. I implored Barbara to have a natural childbirth, but finally an epidural had to be given to get her out of her pain. Our child emerged sunny side up, feet first from the womb, with her umbilical cord tightly wrapped around her neck. Thank God we were in a hospital. The infant is at her breast for a few days when Bert calls and asks me to go to Cuba with him to visit Huey. He says, I told the State Department that the purpose of our visit is to investigate potential USA-Cuban film co-production. Now, Cuban-American relations were warming. There's been talk of a baseball game in Toronto between the two countries' all-stars, like the ping-pong game that was a prelude to Nixon's opening to China. It's not easy to leave Barbara and tiny Zoe for a few weeks, but I do. Zoe has far less interest in me than I do in her, and it is clear to me that my role comes later. We head for Cuba with friends from Los Angeles. Candy Bergen, Terry Malick, editor Lindsay Klingman, Jane Fonda's producer Paulo Weinstein, and my director friend from San Francisco, Francis Ford Coppola. All the people are in Bert's hotel room in Mexico City. None of the others know Francis, so I'm delegated to bring him into the group for the first time. When I get to his room, he is eager to join the others. I say, hold on. I want to meet Fidel. Listen, suppose you were Fidel. Imagine, what would you most like from us? Francis pouts his lower lip and slightly shakes his head. I say, a Spanish subtitle print of The Godfather Part Two. If you get the reels here, we will meet Fidel. He's a hero of the film. Francis gets on the phone and locates a print in Madrid. We wait two days until Part Two arrives in Mexico City. I walk around the now-dowdy Havana Hilton Hotel that Fidel expropriated for his first headquarters after the revolution from Meyer Lansky and his U.S. Mafia who had bought it for a bargain price from my father-in-law, Bill Rosenwald, who had sold it dirt cheap to them rather than take their offer of partnership. We finally meet Fidel in the empty parking lot behind a huge public square after he finishes a speech to 500,000 people. It's an annual celebration of their block-by-block grassroots electoral process of municipal assemblies. Prime Minister Castro has implored the throng, Don't believe in me. Believe in yourselves. In our revolution, the half-million responded in unison, Fidel, 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 Fidel. Now Paula asks, Why did you kill all those people in the sports stadium? He says, Revolution is a serious business. We took over the country. We gave them a chance to leave. They didn't. They wanted to kill us. Fidel looks down for some moments. He looks at us softly. He says, They wanted to stop the revolution. Fidel shakes our hands as he makes his way around our circle. When he is in front of me, he leans close and whispers in my ear, just like Oscar Chazo, when we exchanged our first words. He says, Do you play basketball? I said, Yes, I do. I played center for the Cambridge University basketball team in 1966 against Oxford. The Brits never played basketball then, so I could make the team. And Oxford's six foot five American center outjumped me on the tip off dribbled down the court, switched the ball from his right to his left hand for a layup as he used his right elbow to smash my eyeglasses into my skull. 
I left the game in an ambulance. That Oxford Rhodes scholar, Bill Bradley, later stars for the NBA New York Knicks and becomes a U.S. senator from New Jersey. Fidel hmm. says, okay, bring two guys at 9 o'clock tomorrow to the schoolyard by the beach and we'll play. I say, okay, you got a game. He says, okay, we got a game. Francis stands to my left. Fidel shakes his hand and says, I hope you don't mind, but we have stolen the print of your movie from your room and we are copying it now to show our people. Francis throws up his arms in the air and says, it's not mine, it's Paramount's. Mission accomplished. The next morning, the three-on-three basketball game pits solid Fidel and two buff Cuban soldiers, all in fatigues, against rotund Terry, hefty Francis, and skinny me. There are no other Cubans there. Fidel needs no additional security in this land where he is so adored. Castro fouls me hard as he elbows his way into the post and makes an easy layup. We get the ball out on the next play, and I back him into a deep post and give him a hard elbow in the ribs. Fidel says, foul. I say, no, that's the same as you did. He says, foul, foul, foul. He takes the ball out of my hands, walks to the free throw line. He takes two shots. On the next play, I am careful not to foul him, but I guard him so tightly that he has to stop dribbling. I quickly fall off him to help my two chubby directors guard their two fleet soldier athletes. Fidel can't find a passing lane. Castro simply begins to dribble the basketball again and heads straight in for another easy layup. I say, hey, 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 that's a double dribble. Fidel looks at me. I say, that ain't basketball. You can't do that. It's our ball. Fidel holds the ball and looks at me. I look at him. I see he's serious. He just must win. He says, this is my country. I can do whatever I want here. And laughs with a smile. We laugh too. Some egos are so big they can cradle a nation. Before we fly away, Huey says, Cuba is still racist. Black Cubans are victims of discrimination by the lighter-skinned Cubans. Andy says he misses American hamburgers. Fidel says, I find capitalism repugnant. It is filthy. It is gross. It is alienating because it causes war, hypocrisy, and competition. Huey wants to make a deal to come back to the USA of Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. And so goes politics. Give me some more of that New Age religion. 1976. Bert calls. I'm having a party up here at the house tomorrow night for the weathermen to meet Hollywood. I invited everybody. We have lots of copies of Prairie Fire. Come on up with Barbara. This is exciting history. Prairie Fire, the politics of revolutionary anti-imperialism, is printed in book form with a red soft cover. This book is the collective statement of the weather underground, ready for sub-rosa distribution. Mark Rudd says, it's an attempt to influence the movement that we abandoned back in 1969. It says, don't despair, we're all part of the same thing. The weathermen took credit for 25 bombings, including the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, the California Attorney General's Office, and the New York City Police Station. How will all the entertainment business liberals behave? I am so interested. The next night, we drive up Beverly Glen and walk into Burt's. The Weather Underground is represented by eight comrades. They outnumber the Hollywood attendees. Bert, Candy, Jack Nicholson, Huey, Barbara, and me. That's it. No one else shows up. 1990. These times, they are Roman. The U.S. uses most of its wealth to fund vast legions around the world, while only the wealthy citizens participate in government. Most Americans are like frogs in water, brought to a boil so slowly they don't even notice. The ruthless shift of money to the elite, the incarceration of millions, 
and the withering social services and public education, the yearly cowardly compromises of the conservative courts, the militarization of the police, and the bought and paid for Congresses that legalize corporations' greed. Abby Hoffman dies in April. He commits suicide with barbiturates at 52. In August, Huey is shot dead with a bullet from the back by a kid intent on making a rep on a street corner in Oakland. Huey is 57 years old. These noble friends saw the bleak cultural and economic future of phantom democracy, but will not get to see it further degenerate. They saw no way out. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. I, I think I want to start off by talking about your relationship with the Black Panthers and how you came to be working with them, what that looked like. I know a lot of this a lot of this is in the book and some of it's in what you read, but what was the first contact with the Black Panthers for you? Uh, the first contact was an old friend of mine from high school, Joycey Sanilla, who I, by the way, got into Bennington by helping her do her application with all kinds of fantasy material which got her in that's another story but here we are back in new haven erica huggins and bobby sealer in jail don cox joycey and all the panthers are organizing to help get them out and protest so my first meeting with the panthers was on the streets of new haven with don cox a fairly you know lower level um panther and were you just there as a as a supportive activist, or were you there as a filmmaker? What was what was your role at that point? Ah, well, all right, so let me back up. Earlier, uh, my father-in-law, who owned many big corporations, including Western Union and Western Union International, make a long story short, the Supreme Court ruled that he had a monopoly on the transfer of information between North America and Europe through satellites and through cables. And the Supreme Court ordered him to get rid of one of them. And it was a big headline in the New York Times. And I remember going in there. I liked the guy. He liked me. I said, hey, they got you, Bill. You're going to have to. They really got you now. And he said, come with me. I don't know if I read this part to you, but we would go into a back room. He says, sit down and listen to this. And he calls, dials the phone. And he says, hello, Sid? Yeah. Yeah, you see the Times this morning? Yeah. Okay, listen. Uh, you take uh, the satellites, I'll take the steel mills. Your steel mills. You send some guys up here Tuesday? Okay, I'll send my guys down there. All right, good, Sid, thanks. And that was after 11 years of antitrust legislation against Western Union. They just, they just switched assets in five minutes. And that radicalized me profoundly because I realized that uh, democracy was, uh, you know, this sham. It was like a theatrical production paid for by the rich and uh, to mollify everybody in the country to think that they're living in a, a democracy when, in fact, it's, you know, a fairly clearly is an oligarchy 
who have their politicians paid for and uh, run the show. So when I saw that, I really decided that all the left-wingers I know didn't, really, didn't realize how really it was worse than they ever thought. And so I better find myself some radical people who were looking to knock over the system. And, you know, when I looked around, about the only people who fit the bill were Panthers, the Black Panthers. I think that week, J. Edgar Hoover had, put a, had declared that the Panthers were the most dangerous group in the United States. And so that sort of alerted me to them. And uh, that's when I started looking for them. And my old friend Joycey, I knew, was working in New Haven. So I called her, and she invited me to go up there with her. And again, when you were there, you were just sort of rank-and-file activist, or were you there as filmmaker Paul Williams to have that be part of your activism? Oh no! When I was when I came up there, I said I wanted to make when I wanted to make a film to help raise money for the defense of Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins, and that uh, you know we could use this thing for fundraising. So I very quickly was passed up the hierarchy, ended up with Big Man East, uh, head of uh, Minister Information of the Panthers on the East Coast. Uh, I think his name was Howard Albert Howard. He's a big guy, and he he said, "Well, that's great, but uh, I'll have to work with Newsreel, which are the filmmakers they worked with, who were some white guys who made some films about protesting at the Pentagon." But I said to him, "Look, you know, I don't want to work with uh, other filmmakers. I'm really here to serve, and I'm here to." get their message across, not my message. Uh, I think they have something to say and people don't know what they really have to say because their message is so distorted. And I don't want to have to deal with a bunch of white radicals. And they said, look, if they don't do what we tell them to do, we'll cut their hands off. I said, look, I believe you, but I really don't want to work with other people other than you. I'm here to serve you. I'm willing, I don't want credit. I'll pay for the movie and you can have all the profits. I just want to see what's going on and be of service. And uh, that, he liked that. Big man liked that. And, uh, well, actually, the very next day, he said to me that he had spoken to Eldridge, who was in Algeria on the phone, and said that Eldridge wanted to see me, so that I've got to go see Eldridge. And uh, that's really how I ended up going to Algeria. So you went to Algiers to meet with Eldridge Cleaver to talk about this film project. And how did that go? No, to actually shoot. I went with cameras. Yeah, I was there to shoot him uh, and start shooting. And, but it was a little bit more, you know, the FBI had something called Contel Pro, mm -hmm. which we didn't know about then. And uh, when I showed up at Kennedy Airport to go to fly to Algiers, Kathleen Cleaver was there and Big Man and uh, Don Cox and... Who else is there? Angela Davis. So we were all there. And, you know, the day before, they had big afros and dashikis and all this. And when I got to Kennedy Airport, they'd all shaved their heads and were wearing business suits. So I said, whoa, this is getting serious. Um, and little did I know was that the FBI was on our tail even then. Uh, but I soon found out because the first stop was in Paris. 
and the uh, police came onto the plane and e escorted me into solitary for a few hours till the next flight to Marseille. And then in Marseille, again, I was escorted out and held and put back on the plane and then ended up in Algiers. So I realized that a lot of people knew what I was doing. I was, it was no big secret anymore. So you're there, you're filming Eldridge Cleaver? Well, it gets complicated. No, what happens is I go, Eldridge has a house outside of Algiers. We check into the hotel and the drive out the next morning to see him because we're going to talk first. And we have to sit outside the apartment, which is up the second floor in this building with a bunch of uh, German shepherds on the stairway. Anyway, we had to wait a couple of hours to go up because he was meeting with the North Koreans. And eventually they came out, the short guys in black suits, got in their limos and left. And then we went up and had a chat. And uh, actually the next day we started shooting and uh, he was not very good in front of the camera. He got very uh, self-conscious and uh, emotionally cut off. So he was not like Huey, <laughs> who I had not yet met. I mean, but he was, he was not going to be this charismatic character uh, on film. Uh, so I kind of sort of, you know, lost some enthusiasm for the film at that point, but also because the North Koreans and the Panthers were saying, look, we don't really need the film. It was not going to come out in time because we're planning this flash of lightning, which is going to happen in oh, eight weeks in New York City where they're going to have a kamikaze attack and shoot the cops and blow up the power stations. So by that point, I was realizing, well, uh, this is a bit further than I had thought uh, I was going in. So that became quite a uh, quite a little next week there, dealing with the Panthers. And I mean, when we went back from, each day we'd go back from his house to Algiers, and Don Cox was often in the car. And whenever we went through the plaza of Algiers, which was in Ponte Corvo's Battle of Algiers, one of the key scenes, was in the uh, Algiers square there, Don would say, that's what Manhattan was going to be like, nothing but cops and Panthers on the street. Because there was nobody there at night. And, you know, I, I'm realizing, I mean, I'm aware of Eldridge Cleaver. Obviously, we're talking about him. But I'm, I, I think that probably he is maybe less well-known to modern folks than Huey Newton or Bobby Seale. Can you talk a little bit about what his role was with the Panthers and who, like his sort of his cultural imprint at that point? Well, he was a real, you know, he wrote Soul on Ice. He was a terrific writer. And he was a tremendous force uh, in the Panther Party. And he was pretty radical, you know. He was the one who really wanted the kamikaze attack on New York, not Huey Newton. Huey thought that it was a stupid idea, I found out later. But uh, Eldred's feeling was that uh, they would all get killed, but their death would be the stimulus for a real revolution. It would make it clear to everybody in America what a fascist um, Bush, uh, not Bush, um, Nixon was. That's where we were back in Nixon. So in that day, he was a really strong, articulate leader of the Panthers. He was really, you know, it was really the real leaders were Eldridge and Huey. 
Yeah, I read Soul on Ice when I was in high school, so he definitely had an impact on me. But like I said, his he's kind of he isn't as much of the in as much of the conversation about the history of the Black Panthers as I would have thought he would be. So it's good to. Well, you know, I mean, the truth is that Huey ended up being murdered on a a street corner in Oakland uh, and stayed, uh, you know, pretty true to his principles. Eldridge started manufacturing pants in the 90s. So he really uh, was less of a constant star. Right. Um, and you, you talked about Leonard Wineglass and the Chicago, his relationship with the Chicago 7. Were you, uh, that whole Chicago 7 trial was going on during this time were you in the mix in terms of that in any way being supportive filming it i know you were in chicago for during the convention in 68 yeah yeah no that i was not part of that at all i that part of the trial i mean later i hid abby when he was on the 10 most wanted list uh for a month or so but no the the thing was i became friendly with huey Let's go back for a second, because I, what happened with the all the film? Like, so you were you were filming the Panthers for this movie, and they said that they couldn't use it. But what whatever happened to that footage? Actually, most of the footage that I shot was in New Haven. I shot very little in Algiers. But basically, I arranged for the Panthers in uh, Europe. See, I left the film in a locker in Paris on my way back, and then got the key to somebody who they picked up the film. I didn't want to come back. By this time, I knew the FBI was on to us, and I didn't want to come into the country with that film on me. And so do we know what happened to it? Oh, I assume the Panthers in Europe had. I have no idea what they did with it. So it's somewhere out there. It may exist, this footage. Okay, well, let's come back to Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson, because obviously people are going to be very aware of them as the production team behind, you know, Easy Rider and Drivey Said and The Last Picture Show and, of course, The Monkees. People may not be as aware of their activism, but in your book, it's pretty clear that they were pretty committed activists at that time. How did you come to work with them? And you want to talk a little bit about that relationship? Well, actually, I, it was I was in New York, and a friend of Rafelson's invited me to a screening of Five Easy Pieces. This was before it came out in the little screening room in New York, and I went to the screening, and afterwards. You know, Rafelson asked me how I liked it. And I spent about, it was about 11 o'clock at night. So we got finished talking about 6 in the morning. <laughs> I told him it was a great movie. And that, and I told him why and how it would be received. And pretty much everything I said was came to pass. But after we spent a lot of time talking about five easy pieces, he started asking me about Algeria because I had just come back from Algeria. And, uh, you know, I told him a lot of stories. And then he said, look, you've got to meet my partner, Bert. So uh, 
you got to go out to California. We got to get you together with him. You two are made for each other. He's best friends with Huey Newton. And uh, so we called Bert at about six in the morning. <laughs> so there, it was even earlier. It was the middle of the night in California. So Bert and I talked on the phone, and I agreed I'd come out to California. And uh, they were eager to make a movie with me, too. Now, Bert was best friends with Huey. He was the real radical, even more than Bob. Bob was really, you know, a filmmaker. And everybody, you know, he was part of the generation that was pretty radical, but he was not, and he was a, he was a pretty tough guy, too. But he was, it was really Bert who was the leader of the, uh, of the pack. And I guess Bert at that time was with Candy Bergen, so I went out there, we went skiing, and I got to know them. And uh, actually, by that time, I'd become fairly interested in uh, uh, spiritual matters uh, <laughs> and thought that politics were, um, you know, going to be an endless process of, you know, things and its opposite uh, bouncing off each other constantly. Not much would be solved through political processes which was not a very popular idea there among the radicals. But I went off and did uh, some research on the Rastafarians in Jamaica to do a film about them and about the transformation of personality into uh, essential beingness, objectivity. Uh, and that was a lot of fun, but it wasn't exactly what Rafelson and, uh, wanted me to do. So he kind of passed on that script. Um, there's a segment from your reading where you talk about the meeting with the weathermen and the Hollywood radicals and the the sort of the low turnout from the Hollywood <laughs> radicals. But I found it uh, interesting. The low turnout, the non turnout, well, the non turnout, but still uh, the people who did show. I found it interesting that Candace Bergen and Jack Nicholson both did show to that meeting. Well, keep in mind that Candace was Bert's girlfriend at the time, mm -hmm. and Jack and Bert were very close. It's suggested by that passage that they also had a, some level of genuine commitment and the courage to be there where others didn't. I think it speaks more to their courage than their commitment. Uh, yeah, they weren't about to be pushed around by anybody. But I don't know if they would, you know, line up at the barricades. To some degree, showing up at that meeting is is a, you know, some kind of a barricade, at least in Hollywood. I guess it's uh, I, the, the question I want to ask you about that, because so much of your story is about sort of making these integrity choices and sort and being allied with people who are maybe outside of the, you know, Hollywood's accepted class, and how that led you on your path away from Hollywood. and But Candace Bergen and Jack Nicholson stayed right at the center of the Hollywood machinery for the next 30 years, and very successfully so. Can you, do you, do you speak to anything about them that, you know, you've watched this, when you watched them continuing to work and be at again at the center of culture in the way they were. Um, just do you have any thoughts about how what what the conflicts are between being 
a famous Hollywood celebrity and being the kind of person with that kind of courage and integrity to make unpopular choices. Well, I, I think it's a fall of, uh, I think that actually is a false uh, bifurcation. Uh, you know, Jack Nicholson was, you know, one of the great actors of his generation. He actually was a uh, incredible artist. And that's what he was going to do. He also was very clear about his own ambitions. You know, I was going out with uh, Angelica Houston. And I still remember, and oh, but for, I don't want to go deeply into it, but make a long story short, you know, I was no, I was not really interested in the, having another girlfriend who was like Elizabeth, my prior, my wife, who was a, kind of, what would you call her? You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, an heiress. Her, you know, yeah, well, an heiress, a high class, uh, you know, identifying with the establishment. Um, and and I wasn't that interested in staying with or uh, pursuing Angelica. But I took her, I, I think it was Donald Camel's party, I remember. And Jack was there. And Jack, oh, he, he could, he was all, he wanted to be with Hollywood royalty, let me tell you. And that's when they started going out that <laughs> night. But I take nothing against, you know, Jack who wanted to be a, you know, an actor and a director. He's, I think he's one of the most talented people of our generation. Uh, so I don't really see uh, that he was making a big, I mean, anything he was going to do was going to be doing in film. And he certainly wasn't going to jeopardize his career over it, you know. Uh, but, you know, he was a for real guy of our generation. So... Uh, yeah, you know, so Easy Rider was, you know, authentic for him. Back up here for a second. So you you were dating Angelica Houston before Jack Nicholson, and well, we were we gone out a few times, and you went out with Julie know. Christie before she went out with Warren Beatty. No, no, no! My goodness, God! I don't really. Okay, want to I'll take. I won't. I'll. Bit. It's just sort of blowing my mind. <laughs> it, no, before before and after. Got it. You know, for, I, you know, with Julie, I met. She was my dream girl, and uh, we met. Blah blah blah. And I wasn't dating her. I was married when we met. And uh, then it was much later after she did shampoo, and Warren. She didn't want to. Sort of turns Warren down in the movie, and that's when Warren told me that she really liked me, and that's when we got together. Got it. What a what a. What an, a life you have led, Paul. Okay, so there's one last piece I want to... Except, you know, I really want to say something apropos of your remark, which is one tries to stay, you know, real through all this stuff. And one reason, you know, I mention all the people I do in my book, who, you know, I have friends from college. One, John Young, who's quite a nice guy, said, you know, there's just too much name dropping in here. And I said, you know, John, I'm really not name dropping. I'm just telling what happened. This is my life, and this is who the people were, and this is, you know, this is my life. Sorry if that's what it's like. Now, I did put in a, a quote from John Galbraith about to take this thing off the name dropping, but, you know, it, I didn't realize, I didn't have this star. You know, everybody was just a person to me. What can I tell you? It wasn't, there was very little 
you know, very little uh, added. You know, the people were the people. I still, I can tell you a good story. You know, like with with Jack Nicholson, who I had known somewhat, but I still remember the day after he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. I was over there with Bert Schneider and Bert Kleiner, who was a producer, and and Angelica was there uh, with Jack. And I forget why we were over there. But anyway, it was in the afternoon. It was a new house. They had no furniture. It was just, you know, a rug on the floor. And, you know, we were sitting talking about something. I forget. And, I, and Bert's, the Bert's got very uptight, uh, which I hadn't seen before in, you know, relation to Jack or Angelica. Uh, you know, things used, you know, flowed fairly nicely. But I think the cover of Time magazine made people a little you know you have all this cultural iconography that sort of overwhelmed the birds and it got very bizarre so i remember i stood on my head but at that time i was pretty good at various spiritual things while and you know and it was uh, and uh, i remember jack was saying you know stay with the breath because it had devolved into this odd situation but anyway, what I'm saying is with Julie or with whoever, they were just people to me. Yeah, of course. I think that's probably why you had the life you had. And for those of us who are looking back at it with you through your book, um, I think it's I think all of the cast of characters is obviously an important piece of your story. And uh, I think I may have used the word name drop once in an email with you when you were you were quick to correct me. And I think I didn't, I, I certainly didn't mean it as, I, I, I don't think it's a, a negative. It's, it shouldn't be seen as a negative because these are your stories and the real experiences you had. I think that's why this book is so, is so important. Well, you know, it's, a, you know, it's, well, I, you know, I remember a couple of people mentioning Zelig to me. Because everybody's <laughs> in this book. It's like Zelig. And I said, yeah, except, you know, Zelig just happened to pass by these people. These aren't people I'm passing by. These are people I'm living my life with. It's very different. Yeah. I think that the Zelig aspect, and I think that's why that's why we're why this is called The Other Paul Williams, is that during that time you were right in the thick of things. And somehow through the synchronicity of the the multiple Paul Williams and the way the internet and IMDB have grown, that you kind of got, it's almost the opposite of Zelig, that you got airbrushed out of all of these pictures <laughs> and we're trying to, we're trying to replace you back in these pictures that were where you were in the first place. Well, except I was, I, I was, I was making a major effort to airbrush myself out. Well, that's it. You did it to yourself. So. <laughs> With help from the synchronicity of the names and the way IMDb and other things have grown. But yeah. Oh, well, then consciously, Ed Pressman, you know, formulated a fantasy about his own career, which he sold pretty well. If you read his biography, I'm not mentioned. Really? <laughs> You're not mentioned in his biography at all? Well, if, if you look at. Well, if you go to the Academy, right, and go to Ed Pressman, the Academy entry, uh -huh. 
on the on the website. It, it you know, yeah, I'm not mentioning it. it well, I mentioned as a guy who did, maybe directed a film, but nothing about forming the company. Well, we're here, that's what we're here to correct. That's what we're here to correct. Well, it's not so important to correct it. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm happy to do it, and I'm happy to have this little kind of month-long party uh, celebrating the book and the movies, and I, I'm eager for them all to, you know, get some exposure. But it's also, you know, dust in the wind. Well, I think it. I think it's important for film history that these that this is corrected, just because uh, I think. While I understand that it's not a, it's not as important for you to get the credit. I think it's important for film history that if there's credit, if credit's owed, then credit is due. Well, it's a good story. I'll say that. So I want to end on one, one last question, and I don't know how you're going to respond to this, but you talk in the book about. Abby Hoffman's death and Huey Newton's death, pretty close to each other in the early 80s. And when I think about them, I also think about John Lennon's death and how in the early 80s, it just seemed like a lot of the 60s radicals were meeting untimely demises. I happen to be uh, a conspiratorial-minded person, and so uh, I, when I look at the coincidence of the deaths of Abby Hoffman, Huey Newton, and John Lennon, all from, you know, not from natural causes. Well, you know, I think you have to include their predecessors, uh, the Kennedys and Martin Luther King. Of course. Well, that's what that's what gives me the conspiratorial mindedness, that there are the murders of, right. 60, of right. 64 and 68 and then when Reagan and the sort of the conservative revolution is coming into power, basically in a, as a reaction to all of the progress of the movements of the 60s. And then you see the leaders of these movements, people who are capable, capable of gathering large crowds, all also meeting untimely demises. Oh, come on. Fred Hampton. I'm just curious, do you ever think about that? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, especially when I learned that the, you know, when the FBI showed up when I came back from Algiers and then the C, I had a bunch of run-ins with the CIA at different points. Um, oh, God. I mean, it's much, much worse. Not worse is the wrong word. How can you say it simply? The business of America is business. What America is about is capitalism. And that's, it's a money-making operation. And you can look at it from a, if you, which I do, from the point of view of economic history, I think Marx got it wrong. The antithesis for, the antithesis of, Capitalism is not socialism. The antithesis of capitalism is planetary extinction. The industrial capitalist system must grow to create this incredible unequal wealth, but at the same time it produces uh, the byproducts that actually turn the planet into a gas chamber, which is happening and which is, uh, I mean, the, the what would you call the consensus reality that's out there is oh well we're doing what we have to do and you know we're going to limit it to three degrees or one and a half degrees blah 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 it's all delusional this the the 
If you talk to the scientists at Cambridge or Harvard, they all say it's way too late and it's going to be way over three degrees and that there are 77 feedback loops that nobody's even talking about, like the tundra and the permafrost and the methane cycle that will be over in 40 years, not 100 years, 40 years it'll be over. And that'll totally, you know, put it into hyper, hyper, hyper thrust. <laughs> so this whole climate thing is going to go a lot faster than most people think. Anyway, well, all I'm saying is, for, for me, all the people who could have helped save the planet, from the Kennedys and King to the radical, they've all, they all got swept aside by materialism and greed and money. And, uh, and uh, there's really no escaping the, uh, the uh, suicide that is being created by this total devotion to capitalism around the world. I mean, even the authoritarian systems still use systems that are very related to how capitalism works. Well, you know what? I, I'm sorry. There, I, I said that was my last question, but I, I, I do want to bring this home with one final thing, which is that during all of this, particularly with the Panthers and the CIA and Schneider and Huey Newton and all of this, in the midst of this, you're making the revolutionary. Is that correct? That's this is that's hap while you're doing all this other stuff, you're also in the middle of making. No, a, no, 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 no. Well, no, I finished the revolutionary before I got involved with the Panthers. Really? So before New Haven or the any Panthers of that? The Panthers were between. The Panthers were between uh, the revolutionary and dealing. Got it. Okay. But I guess the the point still stands that during all of this, you while you're doing all of this activity, you're also making movies. Well, yes and no. In other words, I tend, I did not pursue my career. You know, most people, you know, the rule was get your next movie lined up before your prior movie comes out. In other words, you're, everybody's enthusiastic until the film comes out. If it's a hit, you're fine. But if it's not a hit, you're not fine. But if you're already on your next movie, you're fine. I mean, that's how all the young directors thought back then. And I didn't do that. I, you know, because of Jean Renoir, who told me, don't make your life about making movies. You know, make movies, but live your life. Have adventures. Don't get lost in movies. Uh, and so I didn't. I definitely took time off between films to find out what was going on in realms other than Hollywood. So my, my intellectual framework was not showbiz. Hey folks, Andras here. Thanks for following along with the podcast. I hope it's something you're enjoying and maybe it's even inspiring you to check out some of Paul's films and if you haven't already seen them, some of the films he's talking about. In our next episode, Paul talks about his experiences as a student of Buddhism and the Meisner acting technique. David Proval, Lisa James, Susan Martin, and I meet every few days with John Voigt to learn the acting technique of Sandy Meisner. After the happy birthday initiation, an actor sits on a chair opposite you and expresses what they feel utilizing only the words, you are wearing blue jeans. Your required response is only, I'm wearing blue jeans. The simple, I am wearing blue jeans, occupies my mind and allows me to express what my body feels. If you have questions for Paul, 
or me, please send them to contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com and we'll do our best to answer them in subsequent episodes. The link to purchase Paul's book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, is in the show notes. And you can still find our posts on Instagram at the World is Wrong Podcast and on Twitter at World is Wrong Pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Andras Jones, reminding you that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8-Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.